You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. And you might say to yourself, what is the gospel? What does it mean for the good news to be proclaimed? Or what does it mean that there is a good news at all? Well, when Jesus came to the earth, when God's only son uh, became a baby and grew up to full maturity, when he lived his entire human life without sin in perfect relationship with his brothers and his sisters, with everyone he interacted with in perfect obedience to his parents, when this same Jesus, God in human flesh, entered into ministry at about 30 years old, He left his home of Galilee, and he traveled a day day or so's journey up to the river, the River Jordan. This big river was uh, monumental in the history of Israel because across the river, Joshua had led the Israelites as they descended upon the land of Canaan, as they marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. This river, the River Jordan, is where they passed by, the water having piled up so that dry ground goes on either side, and every tribe chooses a boulder, and they lift these boulders up, and they set them down as a monument to remember this is where we cross the Jordan. This is where God has delivered us and brought us into our home. We were once slaves, but now God has brought us through the Red Sea. He's brought us through the wilderness wanderings where we where we, uh, where we were tempted because we tempted ourselves. We disobeyed God, and the ground opened up and swallowed those of us in rebellion. But where God was nonetheless gracious to us, where he provided food for us, bread that fell from heaven and quail that fell from the sky that we could eat every morning, where our sandals never wore out, where we could walk day after day and water was always provided, God carried us through all of those moments, and he brought us to the River Jordan. He piled up the water so that we could walk across dry ground. And when we entered into the land of Canaan, we found our home. We marched around the walls of Jericho, and we were able to see God's glory as an earthquake rocked the walls. As we walked in and everyone surrendered because they were so terrified of what we were doing, of the God who has power. This river, the Jordan, as Jesus left Galilee and walked up to it, there was a man there, a man by the name of John. And John was a little wild. He had goat's hair for his cloak, and he would eat honey. He was um, straight from the beehive with his scooped hand like uh, Winnie the Pooh. And he was preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Someone is coming after me. Someone whose shoes I'm unworthy to untie. Repent. Change your way of life and do good. I see you who think that you do good, but you are a brood of vipers. You are snakes in sheep's clothing. And you deceive the people and you lead them astray. Do not rely on your good works, but turn, turn your hearts to God. And then Jesus 
walks up from the dusty Galilee road to the River Jordan. And John sees him. And John has known him his whole life, but perhaps for the first moment he realizes, you are the one we are waiting for. John was the cousin of Jesus, but when he sees Jesus this day, and Jesus comes to him and says, I need you to baptize me, John says, I am not worthy to baptize you. You, What are you talking about? Perhaps he recalls every moment when they lived in their childhood as cousins of one another, every family gathering where they got together, and they always knew that Jesus was the one doing what he was supposed to be doing. John looks at Jesus, and for the first time, perhaps, he sees Jesus is not just a human, but he is God in human flesh. Jesus says to him, it is necessary that you baptize me in order to fulfill all righteousness. So John does. He puts Jesus below the water, and as he lifts him up, a dove descends upon Jesus. The heavens open up, the light shines down, and a voice booms from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus stands up from the water, and he walks into the wilderness. And you can imagine John, as he looks at Jesus departing, his face still awestruck from what's just happened. And he sees Jesus walking, not along the road, not to Rome, not to Jerusalem to set up his throne, but rather he sees Jesus walking over the hills into a place they would have called Azazel, where the, where the wilderness demon resides, where nobody comes back alive. Jesus is walking into the wilderness where there is no food and there is no water and there is nothing to sustain him. But Jesus is going out there. And what racked John's mind for the next days upon days upon days, 40 of them, until Jesus came back looking ragged from the other side of the hill. John sees him again coming out of the wilderness. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, and some of John's disciples who were with him, who had, been, who had been baptized by him, and maybe were baptizing others as well, some of those who had come up from Galilee, perhaps, and were following John and were trying to listen to his teaching, maybe just over the weekend when they could, uh, when they could get some time away from their work, those who were with John heard what he said. And one of them named Andrew left John, and he went to where Jesus was. And he said, Master... Where are you staying? To which Jesus replied, Come and see. And that one, Andrew, went and got his brother named Simon. And he said, Simon, we have found the Messiah, the one who went out into the wilderness, who, like the scapegoat who wanders into Azazel, but he has come back. John has called him the Passover lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world. 
John has called him the atonement lamb, the one who makes everything right. Simon, follow him. And together these two brothers go and they meet with Jesus. They stay where he stays. And in the days that follow, John the Baptist is arrested and put into prison. But Jesus pays no heed. Instead, he goes down to where he came from, the city of Galilee, with Simon and Andrew in tow. And he begins to teach. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. There were so many people around Jesus as they pressed in on him, as they were trying to hear what he was saying, and he was even doing a miracle here or a miracle there. He had just gone through uh, the land of Cana, and rumors had it that he turned water into wine, that he made six giant vats of water become the best wine you had ever had, all in celebration of a marriage. And so... There were people pressing in against him. Jesus says, Simon, get your boat. And he climbs into Simon's boat. And they row out a little bit further into the water so that Jesus can teach from the boats. And after Jesus is done teaching, while he waits for the crowd to disperse, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, and then there's another boat. They're partners off to the side. John and James, the sons of Zebedee. They have servants in their boat with them, and they're all fishing, but none of them are getting anything. Not a single fish trout or bass, comes up. So Jesus says, throw your net onto the other side. And Simon says, we've been doing this all day, but if you say, I'll do it, I'll throw it to the other side. He throws the net to the other side, and he can't pull up the net for the amount of fish that are in them. First, he thinks it's stuck on a reef, and he tugs a little bit stronger, a little bit harder, and Andrew comes to help him, and they pull fish overflowing onto the boat. You see next to them in the boat with the waves as the, as the fish are swimming in, as they're trying to pull the net, and the boat is rocking. You see James and John, and they pull the net up, and you can even hear it as it cracks, the net straining under the weight. Simon looks at Jesus and says, depart from me. I am not worthy. They row back to shore, and while James and John are repairing their nets from what's just occurred, Jesus says to Simon, follow me. And he says to Andrew, follow me. Then he looks over to John and James, the sons of thunder, known for their temper, and he walks a little bit closer and he says, follow me. And these four disciples begin to follow Jesus for his ministry. For the next year, year and a half, they go with Jesus wherever he goes, and they see that he heals people who are blind. They see him set himself up in the temple, and he says, the day of the Lord has come. I will bring sight to the blind. I will release the captives from their prison. I will bring justice to the oppressed. I will do incredible things, all because the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. And so Andrew, Simon, 
James and John, they see the things that Jesus does, and they hear the things that Jesus says. And eventually, they're across the coast, walking up the river, and they find themselves on a cliff. And Jesus looks at them and says, you've seen the things that I do, and you've heard what the people say. You've seen me feed 5,000 with two loaves and fish. You've seen me raise people who were thought to be dead. You've seen me heal people who were bleeding and cast out demons. And you know what everyone says afterwards. So tell me, who do people say that I am? Well, some say, one of the disciples offers. Some say you're Elijah, come again. Or some say you're Moses, who's ready to lead the people and doing miracles. Others say some other things, and Jesus interrupts and says, but who do you say I am, Simon? Who do you say I am? Simon responds, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who will save and rescue us all. And Jesus, not flattered, says, I am. And I tell you, Simon, people say you are Simon. They call you by that name. But let me tell you what I say. I say you are Peter, the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And you can imagine as they stand upon that cliffside, strong and firm, of which Jesus has already told a parable, will you build your, hand, will you build your house on the sand or on the rock? Upon this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. They go on a little bit further, and Jesus begins to open up with them a few more things. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to crucify me there. And Peter, now riding high on the confession that he's just made and the approval that Jesus has given to it, his new insight, Jesus is the Messiah. He says, by no means. I won't let it happen. I won't let anyone crucify you. Thomas, another disciple at this point, says, if we have to go to Jerusalem and die with you, so be it. And there's James and there's John, all the disciples around them. But Jesus singles out Peter, the one who has just made this confession. And he says, Peter, Get behind me, Satan, accuser, because nothing will halt the gospel. Nothing will halt the gospel. You might have said something true just a moment ago, but what you're saying now are the words of the devil, and they are lies. Nothing will halt the gospel. I have come to bring a kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your way, change your heart, and look to God. Look at the things that I do. I bring sight to the blind. I bring people from death to life. 
I teach God's good words. I give you the, 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 the law of Moses, but in a way, in a way that speaks to your heart. And Peter, not even you can stop me. I'm going to Jerusalem, and they will crucify me. As they continue on their way many days later, they're looking to go to Jerusalem, and you can imagine their anxiety as they've heard over and over again that Jerusalem is a place of death for Jesus. And they've even seen some of the hostility as the Pharisees have surrounded Jesus and they've persecuted him and they have told him, uh, the, the, uh, they have tried to, to kill him and to capture him, to arrest him and put him in prison. And the anxiety is building. And they're a few days away from Jerusalem and there's a village up ahead, a Samaritan one. For the Jews in that day, it would have been like an intermingled, a, a half-breed, an uh, un, unworthy location. They would have been honored to house us. And Jesus sends a couple of disciples ahead, preparing a room. But the disciples return and they say, they won't do it. They won't let us go because they say, you're headed to Jerusalem, where the where the Passover is, and they recognize only the mountain that they have as a proper place to offer worship. They won't house you. They won't let you stay. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the fishermen from earlier, they look at Jesus, and they stretch out their shoulders. Do you want us to call fire from heaven down on them? Probably thinking of themselves something like Elijah, who called fire down to burn up the sacrifice in front of the Baalites. Probably thinking of themselves, you are the Messiah, the one who is worthy, and they are denying you access. God, we have seen Jesus. We have seen the things that you've done, and we have even cast out demons by our own hands. Would you like us to call fire down so you don't have to get your hands dirty? Would you like us to bring punishment to them so that these people suffer for the way that they have treated you? And Jesus' response, as he continues to move along, is essentially nothing, nothing halts the gospel. Do not call down fire from heaven. Do not call down lightning to strike them. Nothing will halt the good news that I am bringing. So they continue on their way and they find a home temporarily in another city. Eventually they make it all the way to Jerusalem. And during these last few days, Jesus' teaching comes to a new height. The, the city is filled with people from Passover as thousands have flocked in, as people have set up tents on top of roofs and they're staying with family members so that they can find a place to, to offer the sacrifice. And Jesus teaches in the temple and he has just raised a man named Lazarus from the grave and people are coming to see the man who raised Lazarus, a prominent individual. And they hear the words of Jesus as he's teaching and he's saying, tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up again. As he curses a fig tree and it withers before their very eyes. 
These people look at Jesus who is saying incredible, unbelievable things. And there's one disciple among them who knows, I can get rich off of this. This won't last for long. And if Jesus wants to die, if he said Jerusalem is the place, I can be the one to do it. It'll get him what he wants. It'll get me what I want. It'll get them what they want. Everybody wins. And so while Jesus is enjoying his last dinner with the disciples, Judas leaves early and tells the people where to find Jesus. Jesus has gone to the garden. He prays with his disciples along the way, and he tells them, I'm going to a place where you can't follow me. But if I go, you know that I will return. You know that I'll come back for you. I have to go. I have to prepare a room for you. He says, I'm going to send somebody else, a comforter, the one who is like me, but it is greater for him to come than it is for me to stay. And he will be with you always, and he will dwell with you, and he will teach you what to say and when to say it. And he will give you power, and you will do far greater things than I have done. Just remain in me. And as he walks up the hill and sets up some of his disciples to pray, he takes Peter, and he takes James, as well as John, and he goes a little bit further off. These three were his closest friends. They were the ones that he'd taken up onto this mountain once before, where they saw heaven opened up, and they saw ghostly images of Elijah and Moses standing and talking with Jesus. These were the ones with whom Jesus was closest, that he would take off to pray, that he would entrust to sit next to him, the one who leaned upon his chest and asked him, who is the one who will betray you? Peter and James and John go with Jesus a little further and they fall asleep. And while they are sleeping, soldiers come up and arrest Jesus. They take him to the high priest's house where they perform a kangaroo court. They judge Jesus as blasphemous, and they send him to Pilate to be crucified. Pilate washes his hands, and he says, I have no part in this. Do you want to release him? We, we have a, a tradition where we can release one person every Passover. This is the time of your celebration. We want to recognize that. So let's release Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. And the crowd says, we don't want Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas, the criminal, the one who hurt others, because we would rather have him than Jesus. Pilate washes his hands again and says, I have no part of this. Take him and do with him what you will. So Pilate passes him over, and they take him to be flogged, whipped, and crucified, put on the cross with nails through his hands. And as he lies there upon the cross, dying, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Peter, meanwhile, has denied Jesus. I do not know him. I do not know him. I swear I do not know the man. And James is nowhere to be found. John alone stands with the women 
on the hill, looking upon the Savior crucified. And as he offers forgiveness to all who gaze upon him with his eyes, you can hear our refrain this morning, nothing halts the gospel. In fact, this is part of it. Jesus dies, crying out with a loud breath, and he's put into a tomb for three days. When he raises up on the third day, the disciples run to the tomb, find that it's empty, and don't know what to do. They're terrified, and so they hide themselves in an upper room, and Jesus comes and he visits them, and he says, go to this mountain, and I'm going to meet you there. So the disciples go to the mountain. Jesus spends his time talking, teaching his disciples more about the things that he was doing. He makes himself visible to 500 witnesses as he walks around in the flesh. He eats bread and fish with some. He walks along the road and teaches others how to understand all of Scripture before he sits down with them to eat. Jesus, eventually 40 days later, meets the disciples on the mountain, and he says, I go now to the Father. Wait for 10 days until the Spirit comes upon you, the Spirit of power. And Jesus lifts up into the sky until he can't be seen anymore. The disciples, some believing, some not understanding, hear the words of Jesus echoing in their minds, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Despite their doubts, they continue on, and they wait for the promised power that Jesus gave. While they're in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes like wind and fire, and it rests upon each of them. And they begin to speak in languages that they don't know. But right outside the window, it's Pentecost. It's a time where those who had been scattered during the exile years and years before, who lost their Hebrew language, who now speak a, a different dialect, a different tongue from the land where they've made their home the last 70 years, these people are in the city. And so Peter and the other disciples step out of the door, and Peter says, these men aren't drunk like you suppose, but God is doing a new thing. You have crucified the Messiah, but the gospel cannot be stopped. Nothing halts the gospel. Let me tell you everything that has happened. And Peter relates to them the story of their people, and he shows how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything that Israel has ever wanted. And he says, but you crucified him. Turn your hearts and believe. And some of them do but others don't, and the disciples are persecuted. They find a way to remain safe, and for the next few years, they're able to live as a fledgling community, a fledgling church, as they share with one another and make sure that everybody has everything that they need. And then somebody starts talking to Gentiles. And they say, that's not what we're about. We don't trust the other nations with the things that we've been given. We are Israel, and this is our promise. This was our Messiah, and this was our salvation. But the gospel will not be stopped. 
Nothing will halt the gospel. And so while they are trying to keep things to themselves, God uses a man named Saul as they, cruce, or as they stone a man named Stephen, as they bring him out into the courtyard and they kill him. The disciples scatter, seeing the persecution, and everywhere that they go, the gospel begins to spread. Peter is upstairs one day when he sees a vision of God, of lowering a blanket with food in it, and he says, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. And it happens three times, and Peter says, okay, God, if this is what you want, if you want to proclaim this gospel to everyone upon the earth, then so be it. I thought you meant just to uh, Jerusalem and Judea and maybe even Samaria, if they were people who were part of our people, but if you really want it to the ends of the earth. And somebody is knocking on his door at the same moment. He goes down with them, and the person that he goes to meet is a man named Cornelius, somebody who needs to hear the gospel, somebody who wants to hear the gospel, and so Peter proclaims it to them. He says, this is what Jesus has done, and I know it's not your story, I know it's not your people, I know it's not your history, but this is the gospel, this is the good news, this is what has happened. Jesus has come in human flesh, and he has died for our sins. Just as John said those many years ago, the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, this is what Jesus has done. And Cornelius and his whole family believe. And you see pockets of Gentiles begin to rise up. And the Jerusalem leaders say, wait a minute, this isn't what we are about. We're not about proclaiming this to other, other nations. And so Peter goes down to Jerusalem and he says, now listen, this is what happened. I saw a vision. God spoke to me. And you can imagine the authority that this man has, the man Peter. When people look on him and they say, upon this rock. Christ said he will build his church. Okay, Peter, if you say that this is true, then maybe it is. And at the same time, reports, news reports are beginning to filter in. There's another group of people called the Cyrenians, people from the land of Cyrene. And they remember that Simon the Cyrenian was the person who helped Jesus carry his cross. But they were there. The Cyrenians were there when Stephen was stoned. Yet somehow, the death of Stephen provided the watering of the seed of faith for those Cyrenians. They had crucified, they had stoned Stephen. But when they went back to their home, they were convinced of the gospel. And now these Cyrenian believers were proclaiming the gospel to all people as well. Perhaps... The gospel isn't just for Jews. Perhaps nothing will halt the gospel. Perhaps the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. And so the believers say, let them in. If this is what God has said, if this is what God has done, if this is what God is continuing to do, we want to do what God is about. The gospel is that the kingdom of heaven is here and the kingdom of heaven includes people of all nations, of all ethnicities, of all races, of all skin colors, of all languages, then so be it. This is what we want to be a part of. And so the, the gospel continues to expand to people of other nations and other tribes and other languages and other races, and things start to get a little 
tense. The man, the king named Herod, hears about what's happening, and he's Jewish, and he dealt with Jesus a long time ago, and he was pretty sure that this sect would just die out. But he's the king of the Jews, and he needs the Hebrews, the Jews, to be on his side. And so he takes James, the one who once wanted to call fire down upon Samaria, who now is preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, the one who's changed from somebody who is wrathful and angry to someone who wants to share mercy and compassion and love. And he takes James, and he sends his soldiers to imprison him. And then he brings him into his court. And Herod takes his judgment sword. And he beheads him. And Peter and the rest of the disciples hear what has happened. James is dead. He's gone. Just like Stephen before him, just like Jesus before him. Jesus came back, but Stephen didn't. And we know that's not how the resurrection is supposed to work now because we thought that life would be given to us, that we would live forever, but now we've seen that the violent hands of oppressors can take it away. James Our brother, James, the leader of a church, the pastor, James, the one who had the brilliant testimony of hating everyone and coming to love them, James is gone. But nothing halts the gospel, so they continue to proclaim the good news, and it's the time of Passover, the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It reminds them of the time when Jesus was taken up and crucified as well. And Herod sees that what he has done has pleased the Jews. So he says, go find me that guy named Peter. And his soldiers go out and they find where Peter is. And they arrest him and bring him to Herod. And Herod says, well, it's the Passover, it's the feast. I can't kill anyone right now, but put him in prison, put him in the cell, and when the Passover is concluded, I'll take care of things then. And Peter can recall just at this moment where he's in the prison cell, Peter can recall the time when he denied Christ. But Peter can recall also the time before that. He can recall when he was in the garden with Jesus and he took his own sword and he cut off somebody's ear, a man by the name of Malchus. And Jesus, when that moment happened, said, put your sword away, Peter, for if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And now he's just heard of Herod's judgment sword coming down to bear upon his brother James. Peter, who is in the cell, can consider not just when he was given this warning by Jesus, but when he was on the beach with Jesus after Jesus had resurrected And Jesus said to him, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. I tell you, Peter, right now you go where you want to go and you do what you want to do, but there's coming a day 
where somebody else is going to lead you where you do not want to go. They're going to do things to you you do not want to be done. And Peter, as he sits in his cell, awaiting his death, during the time of Passover, the same time that Jesus died, he knows exactly what Jesus meant. There is a time coming where I'm led where I do not want to go, where things happen that I don't want to happen. And in the moment where Peter could have despaired, in the moment where Peter could have prayed fervently for release or some change of plan, in fact, the church was doing that very thing. His, his own home group, his own church was in the, in the house of someone in their, in their community, and they were praying fervently for Peter. But Peter, he was asleep. He was sleeping in his cell because to him, death had a new meaning. He had just seen his brother James be beheaded. He had known that Stephen had been stoned. He had been there as well, and he had seen Jesus crucified. But for all of these who were the faithful, for all of these who were in Christ, as Jesus told him in the garden, death was no longer the final punishment. You see, Jesus took that on the cross. When Jesus died, he killed death. The death of death is past. So when Peter sits in the cell, he doesn't think, here's the end, here I go to the grave, never to return. When Peter sits in the cell, he doesn't wonder what's going to happen next. Can I trust Jesus? Is he still going to come back and get me like he said he would? For those who are in Christ, death has a new meaning. The reaper's sting is most painful to those who are still alive. People are praying for Peter, and Peter sees a vision. An angel comes in and he says, Get up quickly. And Peter gets up quickly, and the chains fall off of him. And the angel says, Tie your cloak around your waist. And Peter must be thinking, this is a lot like the Exodus, where we were supposed to prepare our food quickly and sleep lightly with our cloak around our waist so that we could leave quickly when Pharaoh was trying to kill us. And the angel leads him out of the cell, and he leads him into the street, and the angel vanishes. And Peter looks around, a John Travolta with the coat. And then he realizes this isn't a vision. God really saved me from that prison. He goes over to the church that was praying for him and he knocks on their door and he says, it's me, Peter. And the girl runs down and hears Peter's voice and is so excited that she runs back upstairs and says, it's Peter, Peter's at the door, and they think she's crazy and continue to pray. How often do we disbelieve the power of the prayer? But he continues to knock, and eventually they come and they see that it's Peter, and he says, shh, quiet. 
tells them what's happened. And then he says, tell the brothers. And he leaves. He goes into hiding. And who knows where he goes? But the next day, Herod wakes up, and he's about to kill Peter. And he goes to the cell, and he finds that Peter is not there. So what does he do? You guards were the ones watching him. I'll have your heads instead. And so he kills the soldiers. And then he goes down to another city after looking for Peter and not finding him. And it's a time of famine, and people are looking to him for help. So he stands up, and he wears his royal robe, and he sits on the pedestal, and he begins to proclaim to them why he has all of the power of the food and what he will do for them. And people look to him and say, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. He has all the power. Glory to Herod. And because Herod relishes in the glory that is given to him, in that moment, he falls dead. The text is descriptive. It says, and worms ate his body. So what do we make of all this? Well, the verse that immediately follows at the end of chapter 12 is that the word of the Lord continued. But how does that fit together? How does that, how does that statement explain the story that we've just heard? How does that statement make sense of the things that we've just heard from the, from the gospel as well as Acts? The word of the Lord continued. Here we have three deaths, but one escaped. We have the death of James, and nobody saw it coming, and it's a quick verse in the text. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that Herod laid angry hands against the, people, against the Israelites at this time. He took James, he imprisoned him, and he killed him. That's a quick quick sentence, for one of the best friends of Jesus. And then we have Peter, a lengthy story given to Peter as he's in the prison awaiting his own death, and the people, the community outside are praying for him, and he escapes. The angel of death passes over his cell, and instead of, instead of letting Peter die, it kills Herod instead. And then we have Herod, the one who was proclaiming his own words, who was saying that he was great and that he was powerful, that he had uh, jurisdiction over the people and he could determine when someone should have food or not have food. He has the power of justice, the power of life and of death. And because he doesn't give honor to God in that moment, he is struck dead. Three deaths. Three. But what does the text say? The word of the Lord continued. Nothing halts the gospel. You see, the strange thing about the work of Jesus is that it, it expands beyond what we can see with our eyes. We typically think of the work of Jesus on the cross as something that happened for the forgiveness of sins. Now that I'm forgiven, I can go on and I can live my life. Or maybe if we, are, uh, maybe if we pay attention a little bit more, we might see the importance of the resurrection. We might say, okay, Christ forgave me of my sins, and because he rose to life, I can now walk in new life. 
Or maybe you, maybe you are able to focus a little bit on the Holy Spirit, and you say, because Jesus went to the Father and he sent the Spirit, now I have the power of the Spirit living in me, and I can live in holiness like the Spirit is. He is holy. Or maybe you have a little bit fuller picture, and you think, well, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for me, and so when I pray through the power of the Spirit, Jesus also prays to the Father for me. He is my intercessor, my mediator. Or maybe you have a picture of Jesus of of the time before he was crucified, the life of Jesus when he was a child, when he was uh, an adult, but still not in his ministry, or even when he was in his ministry and he was going around. And you can say to yourself, Jesus was a good human, and I should follow his example as well as all of these other things. That he was caring and loving, and he he taught others, and he showed compassion, he was merciful, and he gave money when he had it. Or he recognized that when people give money, it is good. Perhaps this is that I can live in the forgiveness, I can live in the resurrection life, I can live by the power of the Spirit, I can pray to God, and I can live in the life of Jesus that he prepared for me. Perhaps you you think in a full-orbed way like this, but I'll tell you this morning that even that doesn't reach, doesn't plumb the depths of what Jesus Christ accomplished through his life, death, resurrection, and all of it that it encompasses. You see, death was the first consequence. If you eat from the tree of the fruit of knowledge and good and evil, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree. In that moment, they experienced spiritual death, although not physical. And yet everyone since them has experienced the pain of death. Their own children, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel. And then Cain's descendant killed another person and sang a song about it. Death has reigned over humanity since our first parents. And what do we do with it? We grieve when we lose someone, yes. But let me tell you, when we lose someone, the meaning for us as believers is quite different. It's why the New Testament often says, they fell asleep. You see, the reaper's scythe for those who are in Christ has been changed into the sandman's sand. When you fade from this life, when you die in Christ, you simply pass on and wait for the resurrection. Death still holds power, however, for those who are not in him. The death of Jesus, because Jesus died on the cross and took all sin with him, death is no more for those who are in Christ. And our passage from this life into our time of waiting for the resurrection, although it grieves those who are still alive, has new meaning for you and for me. Like Peter, we can sit in our cell and we can know that death is coming and we can sleep. We can sleep soundly at night knowing that God will protect and preserve. But here's the other thing the death and resurrection of Jesus does for us. Everything serves to continue it. 
everything serves to continue it. Peter was in prison awaiting death, but instead he was released, and because he was released, he was able to tell and continue to proclaim the gospel to others. But James, however, James was killed. But when the martyrs are killed, their blood waters the seeds of evangelism. The gospel continues on. Because James died, the church gathered together and shared together all the more. When Herod died, when Herod died, because he didn't give honor to God, the glory of God is magnified and more people saw that there is someone who is higher and more powerful than those who set themselves up. There is someone who can be trusted more. Nothing halts the gospel. Everything serves the gospel. Your death, your sin, anything that you do is going to be used by God to bring greater glory to him and greater love for others. You cannot stop what God is doing. But you do have a choice. You can set yourself up like Herod, where death will mean the loss of everything. Or you can set yourself up like James, where death means you're awaiting the arms of the Savior. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.